Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. The Futures and Foresight community comprises a remarkable and diverse group of individuals who span academic, commercial and social interests. At FuturePod, we seek to honour and learn from the wisdom of those who have established and developed our field, to connect and support the practice of those who work in this space, and, most importantly, to give pathways and inspiration to those who wish to join us in creating humane and better futures for ourselves and those who come after us. Dr Marcus Bussey is Senior Lecturer in History and Futures at the University of the Sunshine Coast in Australia. As a cultural theorist, historian and futurist, he works on cultural processes that energise social transformation. He uses futures thinking and embodied workshops to challenge the dominant beliefs and assumptions that constrain human responses to rapid cultural, social, environmental and technological change. He is currently focused on the role of anticipatory aesthetics as a process-orientated approach to understanding and accessing human transformative potential. Marcus has co-authored with Professor Richard Slaughter Futures Thinking for Social Foresight in 2005. He also co-edited two books with Sahail Inayatullah and Ivana Maloyevich, that is the Neo-Humanist Educational Futures and Alternative Educational Futures. In addition, he's edited Tantric Women Tell Their Stories and Dynamics of Dissent, Theorising Movements for Inclusive Futures. His new book of poetry as social theory, The Next Big Thing, is being released in early March. Welcome to FuturePod, Marcus. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to have you here. So question one, which we start people with, is encouraging people to just tell their story of how you got into the field. Mm, okay. If I think about it, there's always been a, a, an anticipatory dimension to my own thinking and my approaches. So here we are in at Melbourne University, right? So I was here in 1983, had a great year doing a dip ed after having done a history with a, an honours. So between 1983 and the early 1990s, when I became you know, quite, I guess, conscious of the futures field. I was, you know, a, a musician. I was writing stuff. I was in, you know, educated. I was here at Melbourne Uni to get my dip ed. So I went out and started teaching. Uh, but I was always teaching on the fringes. Never felt comfortable with central mainstream kind of pedagogies of domination and control because they really haven't changed. And so I was came out of that and, and entered, I guess, a, a, a spiritual phase too, where I, I suddenly realized that spirituality itself was a disturber of the peace, just like Gramscian or Marxian or critical theoretical stuff is all disturbers of the peace. And so when that sort of fused together in the later 80s, I ended up going off to India to explore certain things there. And, you know, that was when I... Uh, I guess, really started thinking about the intercultural possibilities because intercultural stuff is also a disturber of the peace. And so disturbing the peace is something that I really like. I feel very comfortable with, you know, and, and shaking the tree to see what fruits will fall yeah. out type thing. For me, that's an intellectual activity, 
but it's more than that it's it's i think an expression of social responsibility um it's an expression of engaging with culture proactively rather than being passive about it it's uh it's a spiritual journey because for me my inner life is very much the the sustaining point for me I, uh, and I will always return to that. I go back to that again and again as a sort of a kind of like a litmus test for, you know, how's it going? And, and when I get kind of disturbed or confused or disoriented, it's my compass, mm. you could say. So in the late ni- uh, 1980s, I was wandering around India and I met Sahail. And I talked. As you do. You know, 1989, <laughs> it was December, and uh, he had come to Calcutta to meet. Prabhat Ranjan Saka, who's our guru, uh, but also a, a kind of like an intellectual mentor. It's, we have a, in, there's an interesting relationship with this. It's not the sort of traditional guru uh, in that sense. He was very much a disturber of the peace, and he f- really made explicit what I guess I had intuitively felt for a long time was that spirituality is a very powerful way of shaking the tree. And, and, and challenging things, and also as a test, just like critical theoretical stuff tests power relationships and discourses, I, I feel that when you take spirituality seriously, it's all about the relational glue that holds our world together, it holds us together, and we can therefore ask questions about that relationality. What's the quality of my relationship with you? with the world, with a tree, with an animal, and so on. So there is a, a deep ethics there that's inherent to that spiritual process if you embrace it holistically. So it's not about, I'm just going to go and the world sucks and I'm just going to go and sit on a mountain and meditate because that's the, the only thing to do and worry about myself. This is, a, this is a dynamic, pragmatic form of spirituality that takes you out into the world. So I met Sahel there and he'd just finished his PhD. I don't even know whether it had been passed yet, but he, uh, we met in the sort of the semi-dark of this big tall building just outside, and he gave me a couple of his chapters from the PhD. So I read those. I still have them in a filing cabinet somewhere, and I thought it was really, really interesting. And then just a few years later, and we sort of parted company. And it was, I never thought I'd necessarily meet him again, but he ended up uh, through the agency of Tony Stevenson who was the president of the World Futures Studies Federation, getting a gig at QUT, Queensland University of Technology. And he came in around 1993 or 94, and uh, basically he's been partially based in Australia ever since. And immediately I connected with him with Jennifer Fitzgerald, who was also an emergent futurist at that time, and she was my wife. And uh, we teamed up on a range of projects. So Jenny worked with Sahel on Transcending Boundaries. We started a publishing company called Gurukul Press, which lasted for nearly 10 years or so. From there, it was kind of like duck to water. I mean, we got on very well. His theoretical positions on a number of things, though he comes more from a political science perspective, whereas I'm much more cultural and social science and historical. No, well, I can't say because he did the macro history book, mm. of course. So, I mean, he has a deep historical sense, but he's a, as a political scientist, he sees the structures there, and, he's, uh, and that's really been a core element of his own work. So, and I brought my cultural stuff to that. Uh, Jenny brought her ethical stuff. She was a lawyer. Uh, I'm saying I'm using the past tense because she died in 2000 from breast cancer. From there, basically, I started writing 
more. I mean, I've always written. It's sort of I write, therefore I am type person. I just love writing. I've got, as you know, I've got poetry and all these other things as sideline projects. So uh, I was writing, and uh, we I started looking at Richard Slaughter's work, which I really appreciated. I thought it was fantastic. And uh, when he produced uh, his educating. Uh, Education for the 21st century. The one before that was um, the Foresight Principle. Thank you, the Foresight Principle. That was the one. So that was the one I looked at first. Then I did the uh, the Knowledge Base of Future Studies, and then I looked at uh, I wrote reviews, okay, for them for Journal of Futures. And Richard rang me up one day, and we had a yarn, and then we met, and we got on really well. He's a fantastic guy and, and a really good futurist in laying down that structure that we all needed at that time. He mapped the field beautifully you know, and he sort of gave us those categories of, let's say, the critical futures category and he, then there was the interpersonal futures and you know, so he, he divided it up into those nice categories which worked really well. After my wife died, there was a couple of rocky years there, of course, when I had to adjust family and all sorts of stuff happened and I was looking after the kids. I decided there yeah, that when someone like that so close to you dies you it's sort of like a wake-up call and i thought what do i do now and i guess i've overlooked entirely the fact that i spent from the late 80s through to the year 2003 working in alternative schools again on the margins shaking the tree you know and and exploring disturbing the peace exactly disturbing the peace and looking for ways that really affirmed what I intuitively knew about people, was that we can be so much more, we can be so much better in ourselves, and that essentially it's the structures that are forced upon us, especially through education systems, that damage us in ways that basically do degrade our relational capacity. And so that was the lived experience, the embodied experience. Lock an intellectual, aesthetic, musician, poet type person up with kids for 20 years, and it really changes them, you know. <laughs> it's going gonna, it's gonna to make a big, big difference. And I learned to play, I learned to flow, and I learned to be creative, and I learned to intuit the, the moment when something was going to be the perfect time to teach this or introduce that or twist it this way. If things were going pear-shaped with, you know, 20 or 30 kids, how to just change the energy in different ways. And of course, that stands me in great stead in both my work at the university, but also when I'm doing running workshops, it's just, I just flow and, and dance and it's all play and it's, and I'm not in control because that's the one thing when you're working with 20 or 30 kids, you learn you're not in control. If you want to be better and you want to in, in, inspire them to learn, you don't control because control and learning are antithetical. Mm. You know, <laughs> mutually exclusive category. With all that in mind, and Sahal had been pestering me for a few years to start a PhD. So I thought, well, that that's an interesting thing to do. I should do that because, it, you know, at, at that time in my life, I could see that I wanted to reflect, step out of this classroom for a while and reflect on that journey or the multiple journeys I've led. So the PhD for me was a quite a personal journey. And then in the middle of that was when I met you, Peter, in 2005 in Taiwan. And you just got your PhD, I think, at that time. You know, for me, the PhD was not, I guess, a, a meditation on the meaning of life, nor was it a simple utilitarian thing. It was actually gathering a bunch of things together and saying, OK, critical pedagogy really inspires me. It touches me deeply. It's not gained as much traction as it might have because it's really good at throwing stones, but it doesn't have a very clearly defined alternative. The problem with all 
progressive politics. Great throwing stones. We love to complain. We can point out that everything. That's wrong. That's wrong. But what's right? What's next? What's next? That's, right. that's really the key question for me is what's next? And because education is a cultural activity, at least as I understand it and I experience it, that what next was really what I wanted to explore. So that's what my PhD was about. And I explored critical spirituality as a concept, as a construct, growing out of the critical pedagogical tradition, drawing on intercultural insights into, I guess, the nature of the human quest, okay? which is always critical. I mean, if, if, if we're not domesticated zombies, mm. we're thinking people who actually generally question the world around us. And we intuitively theorise the world around us. A child will theorise, why is this? Why are mum and dad arguing? Oh, it's money. Or why, you know, why did I do well? To, oh, this, it's because I did well in the test and the school and the teacher liked that. So that we learn to play games and we're developing theories of everything. I'm quoting Wilbur. But, you know, <laughs> but, you know, in a sense, that's what we do. Yeah. So that led me to the PhD. And, and I, I, I did that at... Uh, University of Sunshine Coast, and Sahel was my supervisor. He was a great supervisor. It was almost a look-no-hands type thing. It was just very few times a year we'd touch base because I guess I, he trusted me to, to do my thing. And when he gave me advice, I listened and I took it on board. I was pulled in on a postdoc, which was really, really stimulating, working on uh, climate change uh, and its anticipated effects on southeast Queensland for, for for the next 50 years. And I was uh, began teaching, and from the teaching in history, uh, I got to design courses and so on in, in that area, as well as being asked to set up a graduate certificate in future studies, which I dutifully did. And it was a lot of fun. It lasted, uh, didn't even last 10 years. It lasted about six years, I think, and simply because government legislation occurred and that led to having classes of four or five, six, seven people. But bums on seats matter in universities, if we didn't know this. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it, the writing was on the wall. So we, we ended up closing that program and teaching it out. But it was, it was a great experience. While that was all happening, my, pra my practice is always to write about my experiences. But it's also uh, led to a sort of a bedrock of, I guess, an emergent understanding of the anticipatory aesthetic. So, Mark, a second question we asked the guest to talk at a kind of te technical or methodological level about something that is core to their practice. Well, embodied practice is really, I think, something that defines me because of my long time with children, of course. You learn to roll around the floor and, and, and so on. But let me, let me put it this way, because I'm, I'm very interested in the role of aesthetics in engaging with people, not at the deeply intellectual level, but at an emotive level, which I think is where the change can come from. Let me read this poem to you from my book. It's called It's Time. I want to say it's time to get moving, but really, we're always moving, along with the atoms and stars and all that lies between. No, it's time to move in other directions. Grab the rudder from the feeble hands of fate. Take control of this boat of being. Throw off the weight of the past. Cherry pick it for what is best in us, and always best beyond the stains and strains. It's time to ask, what next, when saying enough is futile? 
It's time to love and laugh more and time to cry and grieve. It's time to take responsibility in all its forms. It's time to outlove the bad in all and see or seed the good. I am restless with this sense of timefulness of things, dwelling with that perpetual yearning that calls us all. Yet our compasses are skewed, so we need to recalibrate. It's time for sure, and in time, maybe, we'll find out what for. Right now I step out, stand up, playfully embrace this timely state. It's time to find new pathways to where we'd like to be before we're timed out, overcooked in the furnace of becoming. <laughs> Love that last line. <clears throat> yeah. I do feel it's time, and I, and I think it's time also to look at our methods, because for me, bringing structure to questioning futures is essential, but one of the problems with the, our modernity and even our post-modernity is the experience of structure that becomes in itself a product. Okay, uh, So for me, the embodied process that then flows through structures becomes an essential disturber of the peace. I keep coming back to that. So for me, uh, in the last six or seven years, particularly as I've run workshops, I've moved more and more towards an engagement of aesthetics, especially embodied aesthetics. I was wandering around India, and I met a wonderful Jesuit priest. And he'd just come back from uh, a US, a sabbatical of two years, where he'd done a doctorate in embodied movement. And he ran this process at a workshop that I was at. And I thought, wow, that is fantastic. Turns out it's a process called interplay. And he'd actually um, woven that into his own work as a Jesuit priest, which was no mean feat because I can tell you he's had to, he's, he was a disturber of the peace for sure. <laughs> and, and at the same time, it turned out that some of the key interplay people actually were in Australia. Now, it's not, a, it's not a, a big organization or a big movement, but it's an extremely insightful one. And it linked up very nicely with a whole bunch of, I guess, the, the values and the processes that I already had in my toolkit, you could call it. It's a lot of playful stuff and everything, but it gave me a really nice form. So what I did is I actually did the interplay training and, I, and I've worked on leadership programs. So I'm an interplay leader as well. Uh, so that I can actually use the process authentically while acknowledging its provenance, the fact that it comes from uh, Cynthia Winton Henry and Phil Porter from the US, there, and uh, but it's linked up with Trish Watts in Australia particularly and Rob Patterson, who's in Newcastle. Trish is kind of a bit of a wanderer, but she's often in Newcastle as well in Sydney. So to try to, I guess, honour the practice, so that it's not saying, wow, I've just created this stuff but at the same time bring it in and use it creatively and flexibly so I have a structure that's not a structure the first thing it does it's it when you have people come to a workshop they think oh, I'm going to a workshop right and they have this kind of workshop pattern and the first thing it does it shatters their expectations especially if it's a workshop organized by a school or something like that where they're expecting some guy and they've written about me as I'm an educational futurist that they're expecting head stuff and immediately I get them up in the body and the energy rises very, very quickly. You know, it's kind of like you're taking the lid off. And one of the terms they use in interplay is exforming. And it's kind of like getting, instead of informing and taking stuff in, they're actually clearing out the, the rubbish. It's like putting out the rubbish bag <laughs> so that you can actually take something in. Because 
people are often so full of their own story and their own stuff. So it's like an emptying out to allow a little bit to come back in. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a beautiful process, and it's really exciting to um, to be able to experiment. So interplay is a structure that's not a structure, but it has come to inform, I guess, my aesthetic approach to releasing really strong energy. And that strong energy is to, uh, the, the point is to build, I guess, a constructive optimism. It's not a non-critical. It allows people to be very critical. It, they, they become, in their bodies, they can understand how their organisation or their institution is affecting them physiologically. I mean, they can, there's often tears or rage and all sorts of stuff. It's not exactly like Gestalt, though, either. It's, it's, it's more just that deep breath out mm. first. So that then they can come to the table and look at their own life experiences. So it's it's like a, a whole range of things become permissible. And they're allowed to, as we all should be allowed to, breathe out, reflect, gather ourselves together, understand or reimagine who we are and our purposes in life and what really matters. Because we're a miserable bunch most of the time. And, and, you know, this playfulness, this joyfulness, I think is an incredibly rich place to mm. start to work towards uh, optimal futures, you could say. What I'm working on is the identification of a new framework of aesthetics. So this is an aesthetics that sense makes. All aesthetics is sense making, actually. It's aesthetics that recognises the deep pre-human roots of anticipation that, that are built into wide into our um, endocrine system and into our perceptual systems and so on. Neurobiologists are doing a lot of interesting work around the aesthetics in, in microbes and so on. So there's always a patterning going on because, again, we're pattern makers. you know. And so this patterning is both formative but generative because the pattern of culture is something that can hold you tight, keep you safe, yep. but safe at what cost. And yet culture is always, like all evolutionary systems, experiencing turbulence. So that constant edginess in culture is its creative potential. So, you know, Paul Ray and his cultural creatives, you know, there's that friction. I'm doing that deliberately. <laughs> that friction is really, really important culturally because we experience it as individuals, which churns our own consciousness and self-awareness and our reflexive capacity. But often we um, suppress that or deny that because of the regimes of meaning and regimes of truth that we have in our culture that then silence certain things. So people are like, I'm an academic, am I? Well, I'm supposed to be in an office all the time at my computer. I'm supposed to be working with students. The body is largely cut out of that, okay? Well, where is it then? And, and when I get sick, why is it that these things occur? Well, if the body is denied and ignored, it's going to assert itself in some other way. Okay. Now, I'm not looking for direct causalities here, but I'm saying these are symptomatic of issues in our society that deny the body, for instance. And of course, the body is not just the body. The body is an emotive machine. It's, it's also, it has its own form of intellect and body wisdom is, is, is actually an expression drawn from interplay where the body knows what it needs. 
and it will get your attention one way or another. And to make sense of this is that's where the theory can come in. That's where you have layers of theory to, to work through. You can see a layer at one level. That's causal layered analysis. But you can also run it through aesthetic regimes. I'm really, really exploring the, the role of the physical senses, but also the role of what I'm starting to identify as cultural senses and cultural sensitivities. An example would be memory, a primary one. Culture is all about memory. It's, it's the accumulation of everything that makes us Australians or us Americans or us Chinese or Indian. Okay? And of course, we are born into a certain moment, into a certain subsection of that culture. Middle class Australian, working class Australian, upper class Australian, or migrant Australian or new Australian, whatever the labels we want to give it. Indigenous Australian, of course, is a really profound one. With a long memory. Yes, with long, long memory, deep memory, but deeply disturbed mm. memory. But white settlers in Australia also have a deeply disturbed memory. There are so many skeletons in our cupboard that it's really difficult for people who are, are not given the skills and the interpretive data space that where we're making sense of this new information coming in to manage uncertainty, but also manage culpability. You know, it's really, really, these are dangerous places to live mm. because you get extremists coming out of it who shut down on everything and are prepared to kill or be killed. Or you get uh, people who become so open that they actually don't want to enforce any form of ethical regime on anything. But, you know, there's a bunch of us in between mm. who know that truths can vary. And we respect that. But we also know that there are certain ways of assessing the, the ethical qualities or the ethical regimes we live in according to the amount of power, of power they manifest, but also the amount of pain that they generate, as opposed to the quality of positive relationships. Okay? And that comes back to my critical spirituality, because to me it's about how relational consciousness has, I think... Uh, a deep root in our own organic biophysical body wisdom relationship with the world and at the same time it also has something to do with the critical yearning that we have to belong and from my perspective that belonging ultimately is belonging to the cosmos it's that Carl Sagan we're all stardust mm. you know type thing where we we're restless beings human beings are restless and what is the source of that restlessness for me is the issue and of course you can label it many many under many headings and you can categorize it you can you know to the nth degree but i think the whole point is that we are restless beings and we're yearning for something Question three, Marcus, is one we ask our guests to describe the futures that you see emerging for yourself, the world. You you can choose the context, maybe add a generation. Mm -hmm. Okay. What are the ideas that are energising your thinking about the future? It's a really interesting and fraught question. Uh, I mean, we're all trained to sort of keep our cars very close to our chest. So there's, there's the aspirational stuff that I feel. 
and yet of course there's the reality of um, convergence in terms of energy regimes and and also the bitter politics of division and uh, which I think is a really anorexic sort of response to the increasingly open plural and uncertain future but uh, I I think there's a kind of there's a balance between rage and hope yeah <laughs> and to me that's really important it's summed up in in this longish poem I'm not going to read it all but called Kali Shastra which is Kali's lesson or the teaching of, of Kali um, which opens like this red eyes and lightning what would you expect we've been so complacent just riding the wave of good karma oblivious well mostly to the cost surrendering to a kind of smug progress grown soft happy to play with our toys sure in our own beguiling story and she bursts in cracking the foundations our tall buildings rock the windows shatter poverty and planet call us to account that's the way it opens you know and i'm feeling that and i'm feeling that the best way to talk this stuff is through mythic images like this because we're in a mythic age you know we we see these gods like don uh, trump you know and, and and you know we have these gods uh, out there storming around but they're blind many of them are blind and then there's the other gods that are raging underneath the planetary gods those deep spirits of the earth like Kali is, is, is she's so visceral and foundational and she's a destructive energy form and yet she's generative too for me this Kali is a signifier she's mythic but she's also extremely present all around us in the destructive disorders from the poem it says the dark mother furious in her outrage cast stones and thunderbolts let the demons of abundance choke us let the assurers of doubt mighty miasma empty the bucket and pour out hope strangle agency and shroud the civilized in all its ugliness and pointlessness I mean, it's. I mean, to me, she's really in your face, and that is one of the deep threads of human existence. I mean, it's always been that way. We actually, you know, what are postmodern? Uh, no, post-normal times. You know, well, they're, they're the times that Dickens was experiencing. There were the times that people were experiencing during the plague in, you know. 1348-9 in middle of Europe or wherever you know you know Genghis Khan was running around I mean that we've always had that mad destructive or, D- or Dylan Thomas rage 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 yeah against, against dying of course so I mean we've got all of that and it's and it's part of the inheritance of culture and yet at the moment it's coming to you know it's being experienced and amplified through this this very uh, medium that we're using you know the uh, the mediation of fear and the turmoil but also the realities of intensified climatic conditions of intensified economic aggravation of the increasing violences against of states against their own citizens which are on the march again just as they were 60 or 70 years ago with the rise of fascism in Europe and other places in Japan and you know, across Asia so I mean we've we've got all of that happening and if you were just to focus on that, what kind of future would you would you be expecting? Well, it'd be a pretty, you know, degraded future. I'm trying to not swear. <laughs> so, but you know, it it would be. It, but for me, there's the other side. 
there's the other side that I was talking to my niece yesterday, who's a millennial, and she is annoyed. She feels disempowered, but she's finding she's trying to find her own way. And you look at Greta Thurman, the the, um, the amazing young Swedish girl, girl, Swedish girl, who's mm. you know just powerful, incredibly powerful. Again, using the same media. Carly. There's the Carly energy, young Carly. I saw her speaking to the um, what was it, the G8. Of, you know, and there she is, this quiet, demure little thing, and hit So, to me, to focus on our human failings and frailties is a mistake. To focus on the mythic dimension of massive struggles between consciousness and unconsciousness, action or reaction, you know, to focus on those things and to understand that. We, as human beings, with the planet, are generating more and more awareness of when relationship is powerful, what does it mean? And when relationship is degraded and structured into gendered, patriarchal, capitalistic, whatever structures we want to codify, you know, it's, it's not that. That's part of the struggle. So if you look at the planet as a planet... What happens to you and me is irrelevant, but if we look, at, but at the same time we can't go with Stalin and say you know one death a tragedy and you know means a statistic. We actually have to say both the individual anywhere a, a Bengali peasant matters as much as the entirety of the population of Europe. How do we as Australians in a failed state? that has damaged the indigenous to the point of, you know, what, uh, to the point I wasn't going to say destruction because there's an indigenous renaissance is emerging in response to the loss and they are claiming the tools to take back their own voice, which is why I write about Gurumul and, 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 and that sort of thing. And what does it mean to us, I, you know, me as a guy who's 60, being born and bred in Australia, white to the back teeth you could say but always in the back of my mind ever since i was a child and i was uh, ended up in an advertisement for the um to do something about indigenous people living in humpies and i ended up wearing my college uniform in the middle of a humpy area with a boy with a disability and it really shocked me and it shocked me so much it stayed with me as this kind of re recurring sort of pain that I can't resolve because I you know we were happily in the 60s you know we were off in a nice little hermetically sealed bubble you know and there were basically there weren't indigenous people you know there shouldn't have been or whatever <laughs> we were told back then it was stupid and it was ugly and it was vicious and you know and, and then there, there I'm in 1970 or 71 in this humpy and I'm just sitting there and they're photographing away and it comes out as a full page spread in the Western Australian whatever magazine, uh, newspaper it was in WA saying you know right and right to the Prime Minister John McDonough it was or yeah it was McMahon that's mm. the one Billy not John okay get my slap historian I am I'm getting my names mixed up <laughs> but you know this is the this is the inheritance that we have and it's complex and it's messy and it's dirty and of course we take that into the future so it's not that it, to me my role as a futurist is to not suppress that but to actually bring it up and to al allow everybody to own it we have to own that stuff but we have to own it in ways that you know we're not disempowered by it 
but that we become more deeply able to share in confusion, uncertainty, the mess that we've created, which is culture. Culture is beautifully messy. It's horribly messy too. You know, and there are no clear answers other than what's the quality of my relationship. So Marcus, question four for our guests is, how do you explain to you know, the mythical taxi driver <laughs> as you jumped in the cab, you know, what do you do? Yeah, what do I do? Um, well, the mythical taxi driver wasn't so mythical, was he? I, he, I was driving, he was driving me here and he, he asked me what I was off to. And I said, well, I'm coming here to talk for FuturePod. Uh, about my work as a futurist and I said that that work is nothing to do with the financial markets I said it's about finding ways to help people think more constructively about their futures okay and and he said oh he was digesting because his other job is as a photographer of bands which he's been doing for the last 30 years so he wasn't just he was quite savvy uh, and so then he, he asked me about um uh, politics, you know, and I, and I said, well, you know, the futures of politics is always going to be politics at, at one level. Uh, but the, the key for me is how do you, the taxi driver, how do you engage with that politics? Is it theatre? Is it life and death? Is it just noise on the side and you're just getting on with your life as a photographer? You know, to me, it's, you know, it's how do we all respond? So I bring it back to personal story. I bring it back to wherever those people are. Of course, story really does help in that. So I will often get people to talk their stories. What do you value here? Well, this guy's in a photography. He loves music. He loves the creative arts. So that's something. I said, you want to hang on to that. Of course, he wants to hang on to that. Do you see that it makes the world better? Well, he would like to think so. He, he, the photographs he takes are not just memories. They're actual narratives of creativity itself and of sociality because these he photographs really very well-known bands and international bands often come and he's the photographer as well. So he's, he's weaving his magic into the magic of the music and into the magic of the moment. And... He's been doing it for 30 years, so he has a sense of where it's gone and where he's coming. He was talking about when he used to be in the, you know, the small pubs of Melbourne photographing uh, Tommy Emmanuel and Phil Emmanuel or whoever it might have been, or some people from overseas. Uh, so he's, he's sort of, his life has emerged and grown. And, and, of course, to give that sense of trajectory into the future is, again, that sort of that narrative, well, what's the next step? And then I tell him, I say, well, you know, one of the things that I've been doing recently is, you know, doing a lot of body and improvisation music. I travel a lot, so I, I love to work with other cultures because it's too easy to stay in your own cultural space and, and just kind of live an illusion. I think when I, my work with other cultures is really important to my inner world, but it's also important to my growth and evolution as a futurist as well and then I talked about my poetry and I said well I, I write poems about this stuff I have been for years so it's a matter of you, you lay it out there in a way that's 
well, you, I guess is acceptable. There's also a legitimacy. I work at a university, so I legitimate it. I'm not saying I'm just some sort of flaky guy wandering around. Of course, if you know me, I'm a flaky guy. But mm. <laughs> you know, it's so I, I'm also keen to legitimate the process and the profession, if you want to call it that. Give it, give it a, a sense of validity within institutional context. I didn't say it to this guy because we, it was only a short conversation, but, you know, I often will point out how, you know, corporations and institutions and even countries, let's say Singapore and so on, have actively engaged with futures thinking in order to be more strategic, more flexible, more resilient and so on. So these are other terms that I might use along the way, but it's, it's always tongue-in-cheek, they're light-hearted and so on because to me I want to, again, I want people to respond emotionally and think, oh, that's really, really interesting. He left saying, I'm going to find I said, well, look up FuturePod, Google it, you know, and see what they, see what's there because I know these guys have been doing, I didn't know how many you've done, but I know you've been doing these interviews and uh, he was really excited and I wouldn't be at all surprised. He's the kind of guy who will go and actually Google it <laughs> and have a listen. So, Marcus, do you want to tell us a bit more about anticipatory aesthetics? Oh, would I ever? It's to me, it's something that excites me. I um, because I think it's it's bringing together into another into a clear form so many threads in my own life up to now. Anyway, essentially, as a creative person, I have an aesthetic approach to sense making and to therefore anticipation. Anyway. What happened was that a number of years ago, a couple of years ago now, James Data or Jim Data asked me to write a reflection on my own pedagogy as a futurist. And out of that emerged me, uh, or it resulted in me, should I say, reflecting on exactly what is it that I'm trying to do. I'm trying to engage students holistically. I'm trying to empower them. But as an historian, I have a very deep sense of historical structure and process, which I think of as memory. How do we remember things? And memory is an aesthetic because memory is always readjusting to the world around it. And it seeks to find patterns that affirm or justify things. And we can see that in Australian arguments about, you know, black armband history or not or, or whatever it might be so and, and and of course history is always being leveraged by both progressives and conservatives to fulfill ends okay so there's an aesthetic there in history at work and of course much of what we will do if we need to make a judgment about the future we will look to our own experiential database and say okay what happened here oh we can try that there now, data is very good at pointing out that we're entering a period of human sociality, human history, whatever we want to call it, in which we actually don't have a database up to speed. Okay, so we're going to have to be more creative about that, which means we have to have a different relationship with our memory itself. But to me, memory is like a cultural sense. It's something we turn to as a sense, just like taste and touch and sight and sound, in order to make judgments. Interestingly, when I looked into it, was, uh, I touched on this already, is that the neurobiology of memory and the neurobiology of aesthetics essentially points to this, but of course it's wired into the genetics 
of, of uh, single-celled organisms, all organisms, deploy an aesthetic matrix to interpret the world, to identify threats, opportunities, possibilities, and so on, and respond to them. So what's the other side of memory for me is another sense, though, and it's deeply human, and it's foresight. It's built on the same thing. Memory is all about patterning, but so is foresight. It's about patterning, but what we're doing is extrapolating the pattern into the future. So I see that as a secondary future sense. And again, the extrapolation of data is genetically wired into even the single-celled organism. Okay? So that genetic wiring to me is really, really exciting. And I see that as a, as a second cultural sense. That foresight is something we do in, as, as cultural beings. We deploy memory and foresight to make judgments about the future. Well, what's the critical ingredient here is you or me as individuals. Because we will deploy according to our sense of agency, our sense of voice. How much, how much can I affect the world around me? Okay. So to me, understanding that my voice in the chorus of humanity or the chorus of the planetary collective is still important. And the degree to which I feel my voice has some effect in the world is the degree to which I'm going to be more likely to proactively engage memory and foresight. So, so yeah. in so, yeah. sort of a, there's a sense here that, I mean, it's interesting when you talk about the cognitive uh, biology work because yes we do imagine the future but of course we imagine the future based on the habits of our mind and what we've learnt mm. I wonder if there's a possibility why we can't imagine something that we haven't in some way experienced is it possible to use anticipatory processes to evoke richer memories mm. I think you're right and this is what excites me about this whole process because imagination is only ever the sum of the of the data bits that we carry around with us okay so one of the things I've, i love to say to my first or second year students is uh, at university is you know leonardo da vinci look at the amazing things he thought of but he all his imaginings occurred with a newtonian universe mm. or a euclidean universe that kind of universe where uh, he could not imagine a mobile phone or something that was wireless, because that was not at all within the scope of his uh, experience. So even though he could creatively link up and totally create new possibilities, they were all within a mechanical universe. Mm. So, and it's so true for us. But what we have now is a much richer much more diverse vocabulary. Not only are we, you know, given the, the wonderful insights of uh, physics and emergent science, everything from nanotechnology through to uh, AI and, and, of course, the quantum and, and so on. So we've got all of that, but we also live in a world where there are no clear boundaries between cultures anymore. So we've got a vast opportunity to engage with cultural imaginings from the indigenous Australians through to... Um, indigenous everywhere, through to the deep structures of Confucian civilization, Christian civilization, Islamic civilization, Hindu civilization, and so on. We've got all of this and more. But do we have the capacity mm. to filter and sense-make and creatively construct new meanings?
So thanks, Marcus, for it's been a fascinating and thoroughly enjoyable interview. You've spoken a bit about the Indigenous and the importance of memory and relationship. Mm. And um, mm. So, yeah, thanks very much, and I think you're going to finish with uh, a poem. Yeah, I am. I've been in love with Guru Mool's music, and obviously it was uh, a great loss to Australia, I think, and to the planet, actually, when he died a couple of years ago. But I, when I first heard him, I was so overwhelmed that I wrote this poem, and I thought I'd share it with you. Guru Mool. When I first heard his voice, I lost my breath. Heart hung heavy, full of an unknown longing. The cry of the stars was in it powered by a soul that walked with his people, and yet welcomed strangers like me to walk with him too. Such generosity there, mixed pain, deep roots, from which his tribal spirit could beckon to the many who have lost their roots and offer solace, and future campfires around which to gather. Thanks, Marcus. It's a pleasure. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.